the kind of self-knowledge and certainty that you get from working directly with a planner. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. And welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This will be episode one of season three. In this episode, I have another lawyer, actually a long run of lawyers here. We have Howard Goldford, who's here in Edmonton and specializes in claims dealing with uh, workers' compensation issues from an employee perspective. Really interesting interview, lots to learn here. Uh, Howard is uh, likely more knowledgeable than anybody you'll ever run into around workers' compensation issues. And uh, the interview takes a fair bit of time, so I'm gonna keep my comments short here. Uh, First off, this is good for accident and sickness credits in the province of Alberta. It will be good for insurance credits in all other jurisdictions, uh, financial planning credit from FP Canada. Uh, There will be no IROC credits. And as usual, we will also have an IAS credit or advocacy credit for this episode. The color for this episode is purple. The color for this episode is purple. Okay, I'm joined today by Howard Goldford. Howard is a lawyer here in Edmonton, and Howard reached out to me just a short amount of time, maybe three weeks ago or so, I think it was. We're just in the, uh, you know, we're recording this in June of 2020, just as Alberta is getting ready to reopen. I think that's right, and or in the midst of reopening. And I found this quite an interesting case. So. Howard, could you just describe maybe a little bit of what you do and then how that led you to track me down? Okay, yeah, thanks, Jason. Yeah, I, I um, for the last 30 years, have, in various uh, degrees and intensity, have represented uh, WCB claimants, injured workers, not the employer, just the employee. It's, kind of, it's, it's, it's run the gamut of different issues, but the issue that brought me to you was one related to a gentleman who had reached his retirement years and under the WCB policy is deemed to have been retired unless he can show either through conversations he had before he was injured or some other direct evidence that he would have continued to work past the age of retirement past the age of 65. Uh, In our case, and and this fellow had been quite young, not quite young, he was in his early 50s and, and so my instincts as a lawyer were to try and build up the case, build up the evidence as strongly as I could, as meaningful as, as, as I could. And one of the tools that I figured we should try is 
to talk to somebody who is an expert in financial planning, particularly in retirement planning, to see what life would have been for this fellow back before he got injured. And that's what brought me to you. And that's just one of many issues that I, that I deal with. I can, uh, in, in a day, talk to many people. Uh, it used to be five to 10 people they would call in because this is a, a highly un, underrepresented area and, and I give my initial con- consultations for free. And that experience and that advice can be invaluable to people. Uh, not very often do, do they become clients. There has to be a, a set of criteria that, uh, that I can uh, rely on in order to make it work for both of us. But um, in this case, this fellow was in was in very serious situation. He was going in the hole a significant amount of money every month because of the, the WCB had decided to deem him as retiring at 65. And that was the issue that we had to work on. So in a case like this, really you have to go before, and I can't remember what the name of the board is, but there's a, a board at WCB. You go before, you represent the case, you say, given his facts, working beyond age 65 would have been likely. Is it normal to pursue that kind of exception to, I, I don't want to say policy, but I, I assume that's what it is, is sort of an exception to the to the sort of default age, or are there other exceptions like that that are normal to pursue? They have, um, underneath the policy, they have what they call a business procedures. And the business procedures are meant to, to assist the uh, case managers, the, the uh, individuals that work at the board with their boots on the ground to try and evaluate every situation to see what what they can infer, what they can believe, what they can trust. And in his case, the policy, there is a specific policy uh, that not only says so we deem retirement at 65, but also says unless you find A, B, C, or D. And the business procedure elaborates on that A, B, C, or D. It doesn't say anything about financial planning or retirement planning. It does say that if you can present an, a retirement plan that was done before you were injured and it shows that you were committed to working past the age of 65, that, that's very compelling evidence. But most of the injured workers come from the oil and gas or the work construction industries or, or their nurses or some occupation that's, that's very physical in nature. And they're not going to have retirement plans likely. They usually are working with a pension or they're working with, uh, they got a high income and they don't, they don't worry about it. They just try, they just try to save, 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 and work until they're hopefully into their, you know, 60s if they can handle it. And that's uh, that's where they end up. So, in this case, there was no retirement plan. Uh, in this case, the uh, the fellow had a young family. He had married late, and he'd had four four children. The youngest one was five years old when he got injured. That um, child wasn't going to turn even 18 before, before he reached the age of 65. So one of the criteria, uh, I gather, and it wasn't in the business procedure, was that this, this, the board would extend it until the child was 18 years of age. They didn't ask themselves the question, well, what's the difference between raising an 18-year-old, sorry, raising a 17-year-old and raising an 18-year-old? They're still living at home. They're still going to school and eating out of your refrigerator. So. That was one factor, but um, again, it's it's just one consideration. Is that going to be enough? Well, it wasn't enough. So we had to go one step further and take this to the last level of appeal, which was the 
the Appeals Commission, which is a panel of three individuals, which is what we did um, last week. And of course, we're still awaiting a result on that. I, I sure hope that we get good news on that front. What's the, I don't know if success rate is the right word here, but when you take a case like this, where you say policy says, business procedure says, and I'm looking for this that you haven't given, are you successful half the time or is it more than half, less than half? Can you give a feel for that? Or is there some compromise? Does WCB sometimes sort of cut it off where in this case, you might be asking for benefits to age 70 and they say, well, we'll split the difference and go to 68. What, what do outcomes look like here? It's a tough question to answer because you are really depending on the facts. And what we did by adding the financial plan is we added a significant fact. And I, I what I said to them was, um, you know, I felt this was probably the best quality of evidence you could bring forward because had he thought about it when he got injured or before he got injured, he would have recognized that, uh, you know, he better he better be prepared to work into his 60s, well into his past 65. So much of it is fact-driven. In terms of the, the appeals commission decisions, a large percentage of, them, a percentage of them will support some relief for the, for the injured worker. And by that, I mean probably three quarters. And, that, and that's, a lot of that is thanks to the work that's been done through um, the reviews done under the Notley government and the changes to the legislation. There were very, some very significant changes that were made, and they seem to be, be gaining traction. So I'm, I'm happy for that. In my own uh, practice, I try to do one of two things. If I think that there is a very good chance of success, um, and I, by that I mean somewhere in the order of 8 out of 10 or 9 out of 10, then I'll take it on personally. Otherwise, what I'll try to do is counsel a person how to do it for themselves, how to prepare it, how to, how to present it. And that's just done on, a, on a, what you call a pro bono basis. Uh, you know, it's done periodically through conversations on the phone making sure that they've turned every stone over that they can and um, structured their argument in a way that is responsive to the policy. So is this your sole practice? Is almost everything you do or everything you do related to uh, workers' compensation or do you have other practice areas as well? Um, that's quite a mouthful, Jason. I'm, I, I came to Edmonton to work on the construction of the West Edmonton Mall and I worked with a Gramazing family for four years through construction of phases two and three, doing all of their leasing legal work. And then I went into, went in, into, into business with, because uh, it became the age of uh, gold, gold mineral exploration. So I went and worked with a couple of public companies and um, sat, did, the, did the corporate council work for public companies until, until quite a few of the people who knew me at triple, from my triple five days asked me to please go back into practice they had they had projects they needed help with. And so it was 30 years ago um, when I went back into private practice that I was working with a senior lawyer and he had quite a range of work. And he unfortunately had to go into the hospital for some, some emergency surgery. So he, when I visited him, he said, I, I got these files on the back of my credenza. Uh, have a look at them. And I did. And the first one I handled it, we were successful. And it was a very rewarding experience. Uh, you know, it changes the lives of the people if you can do something good for them like that. And that's and that's something that uh, is, a, what do you call it, a psychic reward for for the work that we do. And I so I wouldn't I wasn't going to walk away from it after that because I knew that there was there was a ton of it. That's when I put the ad in the 
in the Edmonton Sun and got 120 phone calls in a week. And I knew that, uh, you know, you could, you could fill your life with it. But I wasn't prepared to do it full time because it's a very challenging. And in terms of running a business, it's probably not a very sane business model. So I kept on the other stuff as well. And I, and I hired a articling student who, as it turns out, he loved the WCB stuff. So he spent 20 years with me and that's all he did. And I, and I carried on with the other things. And, and occasionally by referral, if somebody called me and said, so-and-so said, I should hire you to do my WCB claim, I would take it on. But I wasn't going to take on, it was a constant stream of cold calls, constant stream. And my, uh, my associate took them and handled them very well for, for 20 years. Yeah, I would imagine it's a difficult business model just doing those types of claims, because as you said, you, you know, you might have been fielding in maybe pre-COVID days, five to 10 calls a day, I think is where you started off. Can you give a feel for what would cause you to tell somebody at that point, look, this is a fruitless endeavor. WCB has made the decision they're going to make and you're better off just to accept it. Would that be a typical conversation out of some portion of those five to 10 calls? That would be more blunt than I would be. Um, I would generally say, well, you've got this going for you, but you've got this problem with the policy. Um, you know, talk to your doctor, go to try to get to see a specialist, check to see if there's something in your, in your, in the evidence. Can you find a witness at work that'll confirm this, that, or the other thing? So I would give them some, some ideas on, on how to build their case, but I wouldn't get directly involved. And I, and I would tell them, you know, if you get a hold of this piece of evidence, call me back and I'll tell you what to do next. And it would become like a, a constant. Um, and it was, for me, it was a challenge just to try to remember everything. It was going on all the time. My first line, and I'm sure anyone that has called me will tell you, my first line is, remind me what I said to you the last time, right? Because there's just so much going on. Now, you referred to a couple of maybe big picture or structural items. You referred to the Meredith Principles, which takes us way back to, you mentioned 1914, right? So, you know, you've reminded me of that when we started the call. And you talked about legislative changes here in Alberta. And you sent me an email that had some very interesting notes about sort of the status of workers' comp here in Alberta. I'm, I'm wondering if you can uh, give a little bit of background on that. I think that folks listening will find this interesting from a sort of disability or claims management perspective. It's not an insurance system. Um, it's a common misconception. You know, any more than paying your property taxes in order to get services from the city is a, is, is a form of insurance system. It's not. You know, maybe they'll come and clear the snow in front of you, but they're not. You don't have any insurance that they will. It's a model based on a fund, and Meredith's famous bargain, as he called it, was uh, in return for the for the employers never being sued, because the economy industrialized became a very important feature of it. The injured employee would receive medical and and income benefits, so that they basically would have a replacement income. And of course, you know. Depending on whether you're young or you're old, depending on whether you're 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 in high skill or you're in low skill, I mean, you, you can think of all kinds of challenges um, in that. And over the years, what I witnessed in the early years when I was doing this, was it became more and more of a welfare model. It became more and more of a where they would slice and dice injuries, and they would probably the most uh, significant challenge in the last go around, the last um, review was this whole concept of deeming where somebody would recover from their injury and they would then 
be unable to go back to their pre-accident employment. And if they didn't find a job, the vocational people would assess what they were capable of doing. They would look at the labor market and decide what they were capable of earning. And they would then reduce their benefits by what they were capable of earning. So you may have to live, uh, as was our mutual client's case, for many years he had to live on a reduced income because they, they had deemed that he could do, do an occupation which he couldn't get anybody to hire him to do. Now, the reason legislation, as I understand it, um, and it's new, so I'm not sure, because I only see the problems. I only see when people are mistreated. I don't see the 90% that go, swing, that go flying through the system and are, and are well looked after. I have to wait and see, but the new system is supposed to provide that they have to actually find you the work before they can deem you the income. If they find you the work and you don't want to take it, then I'm sorry, but you're going to have to take loss of income. So basically, under the old rules, like pre-Notley government, if I could go flip burgers for what would have been then 11 bucks an hour or whatever, my claim would have been reduced by 11 bucks an hour. And today, if I actually get hired to go flip burgers, then my claim is reduced by is that a fair summary? Correct. Yeah. And there was another inequity that happened because, as you recall, um, Premier Notley raised the minimum wage. And a lot of, a lot of um, workers, um, whether or not, you know, it's, it's running a gas pump or parking a lot of tenant or, or greeting at Walmart, you know, they're not so, so injured that they couldn't take a, a minimum wage job. So, okay, when you were working, you were earning $18 an hour and minimum wage was 9 now it's 15. And guess what? Your deemed income is based on 15. And your $18 an hour doesn't go up. So you're getting squeezed as, as the minimum wage went up. It's interesting. It's sort of a, a domino effect that way, right? Now, you talk about the employer never being sued. And this is something I know sometimes students have a little bit of a struggle with because students say, well, employees sue their employers. But it's really the employer is assured that they can't be sued for the employee's lost wages. Is that a fair summary? If the loss arises from injury, think of the, the mining operations where they're exposed to cancer-causing chemicals, right? The uh, worker goes off for, for whatever kind of disability, and he's paid by the, uh, he proves that it was from his work. He's paid by WTB, but he's probably lost 20 years of life, right? Can't be, can't sue the employer, either, you know, whether, whether the, uh, it was known or wasn't known, you know, it's that trade-off. And that's why occupational health and safety plays an important role as well in the governance of, of the workplace, because they're the ones that are supposed to make sure that air quality, et cetera, is, is managed in a way that's uh, non-harmful. Now, if I'm remembering right, another item that came out of the Meredith report was that it's supposed to be no-fault coverage, right? So an employer doesn't see their premiums change because of a claim. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, not exactly. I mean, this is one of the processes that probably the employers would, would rail against. No-fault meant basically that, uh, that if somebody was careless and contributed to their own accident, as long as it was an accident that happened at work, they would receive the same coverage as somebody who truly was innocent of any fault. So it was no fault. It was, it was maintained at a no fault level. The employer side of it though, and, and I'm not as familiar with this because I don't handle employers' claims. They have what they call an experience rating. 
Um, the employer, every industry sets a payroll um, weighting set that they pay assessments based on on their industry and the size of their payroll. But if they have uh, injuries and the cost, the injury costs are added to their experience rating and it increases their payroll cost. So it can be very frustrating for an employer who um, you know, can suffer two or three very expensive claims. It really is punishing. So what we find happening, and this is another challenge that we face in, in the field is that um, sometimes people are they're, they're encouraged not to, not to report a claim. It's illegal, um, it's dangerous, but we know it happens because the employer doesn't want to lose their job. The, the, uh, the employee, the, I'm sorry, the employee doesn't want to lose their job. The employer doesn't want to find themselves being costed out of their ability to, to competitively uh, bid for business because their payroll costs are so high. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. And the only way out of the cycle typically is um, to start a new company, you know, same, same management, new company, new subsidiary, something that doesn't have the, uh, the same payroll cost. I know WCB does some audit. In fact, we had a WCB audit that we went through, no problem, but about four years ago, five years ago, something like that. Would WCB audit pick up that kind of thing that you, or do they care? Is there no recourse there where you start the new corporation to start your experience over again? No, I think, uh, I don't think the audit um, process is meant to catch that kind of thing. I think it's just meant to, to make sure that you're reporting your payroll properly. That you're not exclu- not excluding, you know, certain employees from the payroll. Makes sense. I, I get that principle. Now, have you ever had a case like this? You have an employee who was encouraged not to report, didn't report, and now maybe we're you know, six or ten months after the fact, and the employer realizes they should have reported. Is that something that's rolled across your desk? All the time. I mean, there's there are certain companies that are notorious for that. Now, they also usually provide disability insurance, other kinds of benefits. But because those kinds of costs are, are, are lower than, um, you know, the insurance premiums on a group is lower than the payroll cost that uh, is laid down by WCB. I would think that's their thinking anyways. I don't know the internal financing of it. But um, sometimes what happens is the insurance company then becomes, because they don't want to pay either. Whereas the WCB is, is more supportive of compensating injured workers, a disability insurer might put up a, a fight and that's what this whole no-fault system was meant to get around. So yeah, I do see that a lot. Yeah, I mean, certainly the default provision in most group disability plans is that WCB is first payer. So they're going to look for that WCB claim before they pay benefits. Yes, they are. Now, what about, I think that everybody, when they think about workers' compensation benefits, thinks about the the monthly income benefit or monthly income replacement, but there are other benefits available through workers' comp. I know death benefits, they'll do some retraining. I think if I'm not mistaken, even potentially retraining for other family members. Do I have that right? How much do you get into those other types of benefits? The other types of benefits that I I usually get into are either rehabilitation, home care, personal care, and, and vocational benefits. That's all a part of the mix to try and get a, and somebody who's been injured and can't go back to their pre-accident employment, back to some sustainable level. As a part of this practice, I've also had had to do many human rights complaints because employers will will act against somebody who's just dis- disabled 
improperly. Uh, I've also had to handle the disability insurance claims where that made more sense than the uh, WCB claim. But when you asked me to do this, and because it was such a, we'll see how the, how the outcome is, but it, it made so much sense to bring financial planning in. I know from years and years of talking to these guys and women, it's a long haul to turn your head around to not being on the same career path that you were on before. If you're if you were uh, you know a welder making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, I mean now now that now the compensation system actually uh, will recognize the full two hundred thousand a year. It used to be it was some fraction of that, eighty ninety thousand whatever it is. That's all they would insure you for. So anybody who's used to make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year finds themselves financially drained very quickly, even if they recognize right away and get full benefits. If they have to take benefits at ninety thousand dollars a year, so what kind of tools can we put into place that will assist them to get their head around it faster, to make decisions that will give them uh, some degree of comfort that they're knowingly going to have a financial future going forward. That's something that I think that it doesn't even have to be pro bono. I'm thinking that in, in many cases, the board should offer to a financial planning to be done by somebody who cannot for this foreseeable future, get back to the kind of, of earnings that they had before. It's an interesting concept. It certainly would, I think, assist with a better recovery. Just having some some knowledge, some certainty, or some degree of ability to look forward in your financial future, it should make a recovery a little bit easier, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of what I do is 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 just just trying to get people's head into the space that they're in. They're mad at the world. They're mad at WCB. There, a lot of times there's family breakup and it's just a horrendous situation. So the more clear thinking you can bring to support a person that finds themselves in that position, the less social harm you're going to have. I mean, one of the things that I rail against is the fact that the WCB does not investigate suicides like they should. And there are plenty of them. And, and you know, usually the initial reaction is, well, we didn't do anything to cause that. And I'm sure you didn't, but being in that position and having to deal with somebody who's holding your financial well-being in their hands and your and your medical well-being in your hands and so on and so forth is is, is a very stressful and demeaning thing to have happen. Unless you understand that there's some positive outcome that you can bring to it, and you need to have people that can speak to speak to that with them and directly with them, not through some WCB agency. And you're referring here, just to be clear, to suicides by people who are either in the midst of a WCB claim or have been rejected for a claim. Is that the when you say not investigating, that's what you're referring to? Yeah, they're they're an active long-term claimant. Usually, uh, their family situation. I mean, they, there are a lot of things that trigger it. I I just don't find that the intervention by the WCB is is adequate nor is the investigation of it um, to try and figure out what could have been done, what should have been done. I mean, this is, this is, this is what's got me thinking about, uh, about the role of, of people who not only medically can counsel, not only psychologically and emotionally can counsel, but also financially. I mean, somebody, somebody who's, you know, your, your pride will put a barrier in the way of you seeking credit counseling after something like this happens. 
but that probably is the first thing that you should have a conversation with somebody about. Put a stop to all of the uh, to all the bleeding that's going on. Find some sort of a some an accommodation with creditors and, and so on. Try to uh, to rebuild your life in a sustainable way without uh, ex- making expensive mistakes. That certainly speaks to the benefit of a financial plan overall. And I think in the case of our mutual client here, it just wasn't that common. You go back to 2006, and it sounds like like this guy was making a decent wage, had sort of a professional job, right? He And I get all union and pensions, so that might have been a disincentive to engage in some financial planning. But really, that 2006 in Canada, it just was not that common for people to get a financial plan. And if they did, it was generally a, a one pager. It was not anything terribly complicated. You sure wouldn't, like I produced, I think in the end, I had four fairly complicated Excel spreadsheets that we ended up doing up. And I mean, today there's lots of readily available software to help financial planners do that. Not everybody works in Excel like I do. I'm thinking here just to, I think, lend some credence to your argument about the benefit of the financial plan is that just if more people had that financial plan before they ever even got to the point of a claim, just if a broader portion of the population had that, you know, you show up at and a workers' compensation hearing, and it's much easier to look at that and say, look, this is my financial life kind of laid out. This is what was going to happen, or this is the sort of ideal scenario. I think it just gives you a little more ammunition to, to have a better conversation there. Yeah, I look at it as, as a part of the package to reduce the stress of what's going on, right? I don't know that people will marry themselves to it, but I do know that the more belief you have in being able to control your financial future by taking steps as distasteful and troubling as they may be. And in terms of having seen the, the full gamut, uh, the social costs, it'd be, it'd be a very worthwhile experiment for the uh, project or for the WCB to do this and to find out whether, in fact, the costs of reemployment, the costs of of relocation, the costs of treatment, the costs of emotional care, you know, if, if it doesn't translate itself into savings that far exceed the cost of a simple, relatively simple process of financial planning initiated early on and with, you know, a supportive financial planner there to help them through the, uh, the hoops. I absolutely agree with that. I think, and that, you know, that's a big part of why we do financial plans, right? Part of the reason to have a plan is to create that stability also to recognize when when you've deviated from the plan or what a deviation from the plan is going to look like yeah I, I like this this line of thinking Howard I really think you're onto something here with you know maybe creating some control group somewhere and then trying out or a, a group of people where they get financial planning and over five or ten years does it make a material difference to outcomes right I had a, I had a client who had who owned six houses and um, he rented them out and, and uh, did a lot of the maintenance. So between losing his source of income to pay the mortgages and, and, and his ability to maintain the houses, he lost all six of them and ended up living in his mother's basement. Now, I know a financial planner like yourself would have driven that bus in a very different direction. Yeah, absolutely. That's one where if you could have got it in front of it early, you would have found, you know, whatever, you sell three of the houses or however you do it, right? But there, there are solutions in cases like that. Yeah. 
Now, you mentioned in here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't follow up on it, you mentioned that you do occasionally find yourself dealing with private insurers as well in long-term disability claims. What does the experience there look like compared to the experience of dealing with workers' compensation? It depends. It's litigation, so it's very legal intensive. Um, the WCB is set up so that, um, you know, it doesn't, it, uh, most of the claim processing is done without any legal intervention, either by counsel or by, a, by an advocate. So you, uh, if, if, you, if you're brought in on a, on a denied insurance claim, you really have no alternative but to sue. And that takes you into the whole rules of court. And um, while well, the insurance companies generally are, are fact-seeking in, in an earnest and an honest way, you are still engaging a lot of legal uh, time and, and, and energy just to get to the point where uh, you can sit and get a settlement discussion. That's one thing that you can do with an insurance company that you can't do with in the WCB. WCB has... It's rules, they follow the rules, you're on, you're off, there's no in-between, right? With an insurance company, they, they, they're, they're, they're gonna make their, their case, they're gonna, they're gonna say, you know, this is what you're capable of, this is why we, we believe your, your uh, disability isn't as, as severe as you're claiming it is, or it's not as, as work-disabling as you claim it is. So they'll, they'll weigh their, their risks and, and offer some sort of a compromise. But that can take years. And what does a guy do in between? Do you find that one is more consistent than the other? Is WCB because they have this policy manual? Are they more consistent? Or are the insurers, are you more likely to get a predictable outcome with the insurers? Do you have a feel for that? If I did more of it, I might have a better feel. I, I have recently um, been handing off that work to uh, a firm that is more experienced, in fact, that seems to be all they do, and they do it very well. They're a national firm, um, or they have an office in, in Alberta, and they're out of Toronto. And uh, I can say that at the end of the day, the uh, disabled person is probably happier because they they have a lump sum, something that gives them a lot more comfort and uh, and long term sustainability. Whereas WCB, you know, you can go from month to month. They can phone, they can call you up and say, well, we're going to review your claim in July. And in July, they're going to say, well, you know, the lockdown is over. There's this new profession, um, you know, wiping, wiping doorknobs. And, 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 and so you should do that, right? It's, it's dealing with more stress at, at WCB, but I think the outcomes are more predictable and they are certainly more attainable without, without the kind of legal effort that's required of somebody fighting an insurance company. So certainly when I hear that, I think about costs, right? I'm thinking if you're going to go the fighting with an insurer route, you're looking at, you know, just gathering all the evidence. You're, you know, I don't know if you have to necessarily get to examination for discovery before you're going to settlement, but I, I'm guessing it, it's significantly more expensive. So can you give a rough idea here if, I, if I'm sort of thinking about my, my cost, if I'm, if I'm in the midst of a fight with WCB and I think, you know, I, I think I need like Howard's help with this. Can you give a rough idea about what what that costs? It's, it's, it's probably three to five times the cost for to fight the insurance claim. And at the end of the day, 
um, the settlement is probably eight, eight to ten times more. So there is some uh, risk reward associated with it. But in both cases, you need to rely on a thorough and accurate assessment of the facts and whether or not they're going to support the outcome that you want, right? If I had a choice between uh, 10 WCB files and, and three disability insurance, I take the 10 WCB files. I think the odds are much better to, to deal with them. And I think the young, maybe the young lawyers would, would say it differently. They might want to go for the go elephant hunting, as they, as they would call it. But um, it's not for me. And you know the processes at WCB. I'm, I'm assuming you know a lot of the personalities there. I'm sure you see a lot of familiar faces at the various panels and so forth. Yes, we. I have. I have seen the same. Some of the same faces for thirty years. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. is that a good thing or a bad thing in your perspective? Do you think that that's healthy or is that uh, should there be more turnover at an organization like that? Well, they they had. I don't know if they still have the same problem. At one time, there was a, a third of the case managers would turn over every year, and the problem with that is you know you'd spend a lot of your time talking to them, you're educating, you know, and you're wondering, you're shaking your head when you hear you can have three conversations in the same day over the same kind of question, and you get three different points of view. So there's inconsistency, but um, because of the way we do things, it hasn't hurt to be appearing before the same people all of these years because they know that we're not there to try and throw mud against the wall, you know, that we're presenting evidence that we've checked out and we know it's serious. Now, you mentioned in your comments to me when you uh, emailed me previously that WCB, at least in Alberta today, is very well capitalized. I think you called it a money-making machine. I think I call it a behemoth. I think that's right. And yeah. what's the impact of that? How does that change what the uh the individual claimants experience would be do you have a, a feeling for that uh no i think i think uh, jason the the biggest impact has been the way the government has handled the legislative changes right early on any changes that would have an impact on claims costs would translate into increases in assessments so they would have noise from their from their employers associations and the better, the, the better of our governments, uh, if I can say that, I've always had a good association with the uh, employers' associations because, you know, Albertans are working kind of people. They don't, uh, they don't, they're not looking to be on, on programs and social. They want to be out there working. And, and uh, we've been fortunate, we've been blessed with the resources we have to, to be able to continue to do that. But it's meant to build up of a, a very large industrial economy, which is an economy that's prone to, to, to workplace injury. So they've had to try and manage that. Uh, you know, there's been a growing accident fund and a, and a growing base of um, claims. And we went through a couple of, of periods um, that were where where there was um, a parsing of claims entitlement, and it meant that people who should have been paid under the old Meredith principles weren't being paid because as I said it was it seemed to be treated more and more like a welfare system or a social system in a lot of cases. But now that it is it is extremely well funded and and it has built up a large passive income basis, at least when I last studied it five years ago, when we were, were preparing to make some submissions to to Notley's review panel, it was 
one of the most successful revenue generating entities in the province, probably uh, bordering on its own enterprise. So the beauty of that is, is the government can be a little more aggressive with its legislative and regulatory control because the WCB at one time was uh, a major, if not the, the main source of complaints to MLAs. They would get calls from constituents. You know, this is the way they're treating me. It doesn't seem fair. Is there something you can do about it? The same thing with the ombudsman, they would get complaints. Um, I think a lot of that has abated. I think a lot of that has, has been brought into some sort of a more reasonable, balanced perspective. And I, and I, and I think uh, I, I give credit to the fact that they built up the, uh, the financial reserves and the fact that the government has recognized that they don't want to take those reserves. They don't want to, you know, take them and put them to the general revenue. They're going to leave them with the WCB, but they're going to expect WCB to be a little more accommodating with the injured worker. I'm, 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 I'm seeing I'm seeing more success in, in in terms of the appeals, and I'm seeing more more money being spent on on things like home care and personal care. It's nice to see because a lot of people have had to weather it on their own. They've lost family members. They've had to move back home to wherever Maritimes, wherever they came from, just to survive, and that was painful. It's reassuring to hear you talk about it this way. You know, a lot of people uh, maybe looking at. The- content for this podcast you're going to expect like a bash session and and i think that it doesn't sound like that's the case it sounds like i'm sure that experiences vary but it sounds like you have a pretty positive overall perception of what happens at workers compensation in alberta is that am i misreading that howard when i first met with mr justice freeman in 2000 and he was doing a review for the conservative government back in those days he called the wcb a culture of denial that treats injured workers with suspicion. You know, with our with our assistance, he did a he did a sent out a fly a, a questionnaire to uh, I think it was a thousand long term claimants, and 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 got the news in in bleeding color. When I'm speaking glowingly of them now, it's certainly that we've come a long way in the 20 years. I do feel that uh, they're more receptive now than they were 20 years ago. Are there, are there some crazy situations that I still run into that I shake my head and I say, hey, this is supposed to have stopped a long time ago? Yeah, sure there is. But we continue to press forward. And, and like I say, I deal with the most difficult cases and uh, somehow we manage. So I think that is reassuring. Now, do you have thoughts? So if I'm a financial advisor, financial planner, and I have a client who does end up on a workers' compensation claim or for whom a workers' compensation claim is quite likely, Is there any advice that the financial advisor, financial planner could give to their client to prepare them better for the experience they'll have with workers' compensation? If the financial planner has no experience with the WCB administration, I'm hesitant. I mean, obviously, you have to tell the person, look, this is income that's not reliable. You know, you have to look at what you can do with your assets and your savings. You've got to stop the bleeding with your um, with your debts, put away the credit cards and so on and so forth, and then wait for the uh, the board to provide them with an assessment of their income entitlement. And that gives you a major input in terms of a going forward financial plan. The ones that have, have experience will know a little more about the kind of benefits and the kind of costs, and they might be able to even to assist 
the injured worker to seek the benefits where they see the cost to seek the benefits that they need in order to to uh, negate what the uh, work injury is doing to their to their lifestyle and to their net worth. I think those are good points, and those really ties into fundamental financial planning principles. That's like you talk about the experienced planner versus the person who's never dealt with it before, but really. All of those folks should, and just a little bit of research to figure out what the benefit looks like. Like you say, once you know the ruling, you're going to have a lot more ability to deal with this. But but those are sound financial planning principles, Howard. I don't think that's anything that any of the folks listening to this podcast should be surprised at. So, well, if we if we learn anything, Jason, from what we did together, you know, they should very quickly put a retirement plan together and just put it in in, in the file because you never know what volume that might speak if, if this injury goes on for, for years. It's certainly not a use of a financial plan that I had ever considered. Now, you've been very generous with your time here, Howard. Is there any, do you have any last minute thoughts or messages for either the financial advisory community or just in general about the sort of state of workers' comp? Is there anything you could share with us? I'll tell you one thing I learned from this process. There are some very helpful tools that are available online, you know, and you were, you were quick to demonstrate it. You didn't even bother to sell yourself. I, as, I, as I told you when I first contacted you, my, my own retirement planner who worked for one of the banks said to me, I'd love to help you, but I can't. But this guy, Jason Watt, he's, he's the best. I can go, you know, speak to him. So I did. So you have to be able to, uh, to describe and distinguish the kind of information and, and knowledge and, and certainty that you get from using these tools versus the kind of self-knowledge and certainty that you get from working directly with a planner. And I think that um, that was something that I recognized right away, even though I used two or three online retirement planners. I didn't, you know, I didn't understand the situation as well as you were able to to uh, to pull it together and and present it. So I think it's important that a person consider that as the value added. Um, and there's nothing that you can get online that's going to replace the value added. And it's important, I think, for the financial planner to be able to to be able to communicate that. I obviously have had have had the same challenge over the years providing legal services. And sometimes I have to say to somebody, it's not worth paying me for this. This is, you know, here's how you do it, do it yourself. Right. So you have to take both, be able to communicate effectively what you what you do and the value of what you do. I appreciate the point, Howard. I appreciate the the endorsement or whatever the case is. I honestly, it's a lot of work, and it's a it's an unusual scenario. You really have to put yourself in a time machine, rewind sort of fourteen years in this case, and I think just the ability to think about what life looked like for this particular fellow 14 years ago that that really added to that challenge so but i do appreciate that and i appreciate that you reached out to your financial planner whom i know is well qualified and certainly knows what she's doing so pass on thanks to florence for making that connection there as well so thanks very much howard for sharing so freely Um, i really feel like this has been valuable for our students not just for the purpose of dealing with workers compensation claims but i think in terms of understanding some public policy items here. You know, I, I think a lot of people really have a negative opinion about workers' comp, but I think you've helped to dismiss some of that. So really appreciate all that, Howard. And really, thanks for doing great work. This is work that a lot of Albertans benefit from. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
to obtain your CE credits for listening to this episode, you'll need the color and number in order to get through the quiz. And also you'll have to pay attention to the interview. There are five questions in there and you'll want to do well on all five. Pass grade is 60%. So the place to go to do that is bccquiz.online. That's BCC is in Business Career College. So pop over to bccquiz.online. There's a short five-question quiz there. You should be able to do it on your mobile phone once you are parked. Then you can subscribe right then. It's pretty easy to do. We're always looking for more subscribers. I think this is a super efficient way to get your CE credits. And it's pretty common for me when I tell people about the podcast for CE credits. They say that's a great idea, but I'd still like to get those numbers up. So please pop over to bccquiz.online. 15 bucks a month will get you all the CE credits you need including your professional responsibility credits. And we're doing two episodes a month now or one episode every two weeks. So please pop on over to bccquiz.online and subscribe. Okay, lots there, lots of learning to do. Certainly, uh, I got to learn some things about the workings of workers' compensation, and I found it quite useful that way. Good discussion. And I really liked Howard's sort of reasoned approach to everything. I think this is quite appropriate. Now, the bad news here is that the work that Howard and I did uh, was likely for not. Uh, not long after we did this interview, he got word back from his client that I had done the bit of financial planning work for. And the unfortunate news here was that Workers' Comp did not like the evidence. They didn't think that there was any justification that the client would have worked past age 65. I honestly think that that's not correct uh, in this case. And I don't know how much detail we went into it here, but essentially a fellow in his early 50s who had four children who were still all likely to still be in school when he reached age 65. So classic late starter situation. I did appreciate Howard's comments here about the value of a financial plan and really digging in beyond sort of the surface level stuff you typically get on the project your retirement needs types of websites, which is where he had done some preliminary work. So that was nice. Uh, If nothing else, I think out of this, Howard is a believer in the financial planning process. You hear in the interview that he has already got a financial plan in place, having worked with his own uh, financial planner. And that's that's good. I, I always like to you know, get people to see the difference between financial planning and maybe more specific investment advice or insurance or whatever the case is. So it was good. And honestly, the work that I did here was really just build out an Excel uh, spreadsheet that uh, sort of said, if he had continued working, what would his life have looked like? I think it's a great example, though, of where a financial plan would have helped if somebody could have met this guy back in the early 2000s when the girls were all young and done up a financial plan for him. Not only would it potentially have been better evidence for the Workers' Compensation Board, but it would have helped him to deal with uh, the concerns that arose. Uh, He ran into a barrier here where um, his income was a little bit higher than what the uh, upper limit for the income calculation for workers' compensation in Alberta would have been. So that kind of thing might have shown up as a, as a disability insurance needs analysis. There might have been some resolution there as well. 
And just on the note of getting bad news back in these deals, I do a fair bit of pro bono financial planning work. And it's not unusual, unfortunately, to get bad news. A lot of times people, by the time they get to this point of needing pro bono help, their situations are tough and often desperate. And it's unusual to get a, a good sort of quick response that's positive. It's far more common to run into a stonewall initially uh, and then sometimes find a way around that. But sometimes there are just not good resolutions to people's problems. It's part of what uh, what landed people in trouble often in the first place is that sort of the world or the systems in place are not set up to help them with whatever situation they're dealing with. So you have to get used to this. If you're doing this pro bono work, you really have to get used to the idea that not everything is going to be a success and not every battle can be won. Now, maybe that's just me, maybe a better planner, maybe a more tough person here, whatever the case is, would help clients in situations that I haven't been able to. But my experience here has been not everything is gonna go your way here. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. Okay, join us again in two weeks. We're going to have an insurance discussion, I believe. I have yet to record some of the content or some of the interview for that one, but I have a good insurance discussion queued up and we'll go from there. Thanks very much for joining us and I hope everybody is staying safe and healthy out there. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast.